Today's episode of The Watch is brought to you by Mack Weldon. Whatever you're wearing right now, Mack Weldon is better. Mack Weldon is a men's essentials brand that believes in smart design, premium fabrics, and a simple shopping experience. I love hitting up Mack Weldon to get all my basics, t-shirts, underwear, socks. It's just super simple, great shopping experience. They even have a line of silver underwear and shirts that are naturally antimicrobial, which means they eliminate odor. They want you to be comfortable. So if you don't like your first pair, you can keep it and they will still refund you. No questions asked. Go to MacWeldon.com and get 20% off using promo code WATCH. Today's episode of The Watch is brought to you by Adult Swim's Joe Para Talks With You. There's a new show coming to Adult Swim. It's called Joe Para Talks With You. It's a quiet show about Joe and his friends and the things in his life like breakfast food, rocks, weddings, being woken up by thunder, grilled chicken, pumpkins, fall drives, and more. Now here's a personal request from Joe. Please watch Joe Para Talks With You Sundays at midnight on Adult Swim. Hey guys, welcome to The Watch. It is Thursday Greenwald is somewhere flying over America in an airplane. I was joined by maybe the greatest relief pitcher in Ringer podcast history, David Shoemaker, who filled in. We talked about Lord of the Rings. There was some news on the Amazon front with Lord of the Rings and the new show that they'll be making, that very expensive show, and it hasn't even started shooting yet. Uh, We also talked about Deadpool 2, and we talked a lot about Westworld, as you would expect from the host of Westworld The Recapables. Make sure you're subscribed to Westworld The Recapables. Make sure you're subscribed to The Mass Man Show to, and make sure you check out The Press Box. And also, while I got you here, I want you to check out our new music podcast called On Shuffle, hosted by Micah Peters. Uh, they spent the first episode talking a lot about Post Malone. It's a great podcast. It really is a great cross-section of um, music news, music opinion, but also a really thoughtful conversation about what music, the role music plays in our life via technology. I, th- I thought it was a wonderful first episode. So make sure you check out On Shuffle. Also, make sure you listen to the big homie, Sean Fennessy on The Big Picture, because tomorrow he'll have a podcast with Andrew Grotadaro on Deadpool. He's going to see it tonight. They're going to knock it out. So you'll be able to get your Deadpool takes from Fennessy almost as soon as you see Deadpool. So that's Channel 33, The Big Picture, Sean Fennessy, Andrew Gutadaro on Deadpool. Greenwald and I will probably talk about that on Monday. We got a lot to get to. So without further ado, let's get to the watch. I need support staff to clear the room. Stand up and walk now. Hello and welcome to The Watch. My name is Chris Ryan. I'm an editor at TheRinger.com and joining me in the studio, kicking my ass and cursing me out, it's David Shoemaker! Thank you for having me. I, this is this is the maybe the first week in Ringer history where I'm coming close to your podcast total. So, uh, <laughs> it's true. We're, That's we're true. Working. We're working, man. Uh, David is the host of Westworld The Recapables, so he's going to, we're going to talk a, a bit about Westworld sure. later on. David also hosts The Masked Man Show. Is there anything else? Oh, in the press box. Yeah. So that's three pods you can catch Shoemaker on on the Ringer Podcast Network. And Westworld Recapables is twice a week, so that's, oh, that's right, because you guys have the Tuesday show mm-hmm. that kind of goes deep dive onto theories. Yeah. Uh, so that's four a week, man. That's like that's like 1918 pitcher rotation. <laughs> <laughs> it's, like, it's like, here's the ball again. I'm going for Tommy John's after Westworld is over. Yeah, whatever the podcast version of Tommy John, you and I both need it. But uh, I have David here. Ably filling in for Andy, who is on a jet plane, I'm sure, watching a film that came out in 2016. (laughs) And that's fitting because Shoemaker and I are talking about Deadpool, which is Deadpool 2, (laughs) following up the the blockbuster 2016 movie with Ryan Reynolds. We're going to talk a little bit about that. We're going to talk about Westworld. But I wanted um, 
I mean, if you if you come to the watch, you come to hear about IP. That's my favorite thing to talk about. So I wanted to talk about Lord of the Rings because last night, the OneRing.net, which I don't know about you, man, but this is like my my go-to Tolkien <laughs> gossip site. I love it. It's like it. the hoops hype for Tolkien. Um, <laughs> they broke that. They had confirmed with multiple sources that this Amazon show set in the Lord of the Rings universe is going to be about young Aragorn. And yes. that is obviously the character that was which played. the worst rapper name of all time. Young Aragorn. <laughs> hmm. I could see him on a, on a, on a Yachty song. Okay, fine, but, fair. Uh, this is obviously the character that's played by Viggo Mortensen in the Peter Jackson films. Um, and to my reaction to this, so the, the actual tweet from the OneRing.net, which is where I saw it, is breaking. We have confirmed from multiple sources that Amazon Studios' new billion-dollar LOTR series will open its first season centered on a young Aragorn. And my first reaction to this was, that makes a ton of sense. Yeah. Because a billion dollars, and it's like two, it was 250 up front for the rights, yeah. is what I believe the, the number was, to get the rights from the um, Tolkien estate to make this show in the first place. It's like if you're going to spend that kind of money, it's the same thing for the Star Wars franchise. You got to have some Skywalkers. Oh, yeah. You got to have some, you got to have some high profile characters. Although it's interesting, like, I, I'm, I wonder. I wonder what, I mean, obviously Aragorn is like, you know, one of the most high profile characters from that franchise. Yeah. But I'm sure like Viggo sitting at home, just like, could we not just do old Aragorn? <laughs> yeah. Could we not just like keep this going? And then like people, would, I'm sure the, the audience would be even he bigger got, for he, that. They let him get pretty old in the movies themselves. Doesn't he like quote unquote die at yeah. the end? Yeah. But I'm sure he is like, as, as he's paging through his Eastern Promises expanded universe scripts yes. that he probably gets sent. He's like, I, I, could, I could go back. To yeah. be, being uh, Strider, he's an older dude, but I think I think you're absolutely right. It's got, I mean, it's a, it's a big character. Um, it's a you know, people recognize it, and people are gonna be into seeing what happens. Yeah, I mean, we talked about this a little bit with Paul Shear on Monday, and he was such a great guest. We we talked about his work on the new version of Galaxy Quest and how he was updating yeah. that, but still wanted to have ties to the original. And that's the same thing I'm thinking about with this, because as we see more and more things get set in this universe or reimagining Friday Night Lights or reimagining, you know, there's rumors Bob Greenblatt did a very bad job this week at Upfronts of denying that there would be a new office on uh -huh. NBC in the near future. And even in that announcement, there was some follow-up reporting that there were several members of the office cast who were keen about rejoining the show, basically. Of course, yeah, and who wouldn't be? As they would be, because these things only work... They're only as strong as their connections to the past are. Whereas, I, I think we've seen that. That's been proven out. But I think when we were first delving into this, and I was like, they're going to have Star Wars anthology movies, and there's going to be multiple trilogies of Star Wars movies. Yeah. I think we were all kind of like, as kids, when we were sort of growing up on something like that, we're like playing with the action figures, but imagining new stories and imagining new worlds and imagining new plot lines for them. And it's easier said than done. Oh, Yeah. You know, it's easier said than done to just be like, there's some LOTR stuff that is not even in Peter Jackson movies and was never even mentioned and is like way off on like another like part of this story. But we're going to expose, we're going to spend $250 million just for the right to make that. And they're going to come for this. Yeah, I, I think that, I mean, you understand, everyone understands why the IP is so valuable, right? Sure. Or why any IP is so valuable. But we talk about, you know, Game of Thrones as IP. We talk about, I mean, Westworld as IP. It was pre-existing movies, you know, big, big time writer, you know, was the creator. Um, 
But those shows worked because they were good shows. Yeah. Right? And they were well-produced and well-marketed and well-acted and directed and everything else. So you got to actually make the product. Yeah. Um, and now there will be, you know, there'll be Game of Thrones spinoffs that they'll, that presumably there'll be, you know, some of the same production crew, same this, this, some of the same creatives. Um, but the bar is the bar is weirdly even higher. I feel like. For oh those. yeah, and that and that's where they're going to be with the Star Wars. And listen, you you get a baseline of people that are going to show up to watch any Star Wars anything, and the baseline for Star Wars is way higher than anything else. So you're so you know there's a lot of confidence that comes with that. Lord of the Rings, I feel like, is really complicated. It is. It's a really weird move to spend that much money. Not weird. You understand why they did it. Because you keep hearing that Amazon wants their own Game of Thrones. Game of Thrones. Although I said semi-jokingly to I think Mallory Rubin the other day, it's like when they announced the Expanse, or I said this is to Allison, the Expanse was canceled, mm-hmm. and everyone's trying to get someone to, and they were going after Amazon to pick it up. And I'm like, isn't it? I mean, I feel like there's just as good of a bet if you took the Expanse, get that small but dedicated fan base over, and then just make the Expanse 25 percent better. Yeah, you know, I mean, right. just like really go in, like hire hire one of the one of the writers from Game of Thrones to be the showrunner and just spend a lot of money on it. Do you start it over or continue no, it? No, continue it, but yeah. just make it better. Yeah. Like, make it make it that show, you yeah, know? Yeah, absolutely. But but I, I think that Lord of the Rings in particular is really tough because, for one thing, the like, a lot of the premise of Thrones was knifing Lord of the Rings in the back, right? <laughs> I love this for, he loved those books, loved the IP for whatever it's worth, but, like, turned it on its head. right. And the other thing is we know where it goes. Now, a lot of people have theories as to where Game of Thrones goes, but there's going to be no question that, like, Aragorn survives any given episode. Sure. Right? Sure. And it, so there's the Game of Thrones, like, we never know what's going to happen next. And you, you see this in other shows, like The Walking Dead, you know, when people, the main characters can die. And I guess we can have supplemental characters that die, but, you know, we know what happens at the end. It's the Peter Jackson franchise. Yeah. I mean, yeah, so it's a little bit more, it's a little bit more difficult to get that sort of, that sort of prestige uncertainty, you know, that storytelling ability in there when you are dealing with such known quantities. Yeah. Yeah. And then outside of the narrative stuff, there's the production value, which Amazon obviously is willing to spend a ton of money on this, but Mm -hmm. the Lord of the Rings movies were groundbreaking in their use of special effects. Oh yeah. And one thing that Game of Thrones did very smartly, and I'm sure part of it was a product of just making sure that there was going to be an audience. And I, I, I don't even know if like, HBO and Michael Lombardo, when they when they started that show, knew what kind of audience that they were going to develop or have for Game of Thrones. But they've had like this really nice trajectory where those early seasons, especially the first season, is more palace intrigue than anything else, right? Like it's mostly people yeah. betraying one another. You have to ride down here and then I'm going to ride up there. But when you ride up there, I'm actually not going to be here. I already I snuck out. Yeah, That's a lot. And then as they've gone on in seasons, there's been bigger and bigger and bigger set pieces and Battle of the Bastards and Giants and Dragons and all this other stuff. It's funny. We would have those conversations like the whole way through the first, you know, five seasons of the series about them saving their money for yeah. the big last episode. I mean, you would see like... On an, you could flip the channel and see like insurance commercials that had a bigger CGI dragon budget than Game of Thrones Absolutely. did for the you know for the first couple seasons of Dragons and and um, yeah yeah I mean it's it, the difference is going to be on Amazon with all the money they've already spent and that they're going to continue to spend it's not like this sort of like you know we're not going to give them some pat on the back for like using their budget to its fullest we're going to be like why didn't they spend a hundred million more dollars yeah, man. I mean like that's the problem with what's when you're playing with something like this. This high stakes, you're going to get to the place where, like, most people are going to sit down, turn this on, and be like, so, last I checked, it was the Battle of Helm's Deep. Yeah. 
And that was pretty impressive. Yeah. So what are you guys doing? Are you going to have a guy riding around in the forest? Yeah. Or is it going to be some epic? Now, I'm, I have to admit, like, I'm not like a Tolkien scholar. I haven't read. Nor am I. I think I read Fellowship of the Ring, but I, I don't know, like, about the Aragorn legend. One thing that I did find very amusing was in the, so the one ring.net like tweeted this out mm -hmm. and then did like a whole tweet storm about all the stuff that it could be about. And it's like elves and all this other stuff. And it sounds great. Some dude was like, Hey, PS, like where's like the text for this? Because like, I, I didn't, you know, I don't remember reading a lot about young Aragorn. Right. And the, the one ring.net people were like, yeah, I mean, it's like page 244 to 252 in this book. And he's like, so that's like eight pages. Yeah. And they were like, they said, hashtag don't be hasty. And then they had like a whole explanation for how they could fill it in. Uh -huh. But this is kind of the issue when you're mining some of this stuff is that eventually, just like it did for Thrones, this will be the creative responsibility and work of some TV show owner. Yeah. And that's that's something that like Peter Jackson really never got out from under Lord of the Rings. I mean, this is a massive, massive job, and he might come back for the show. There's rumors that they're they're trying to get it. Well, it'd be great. I mean, I think that would bring some level of like kind of authorial stability to the show. Mm -hmm. You know, I mean, one of the things the fans that that fans of any IP of any book series of any whatever these days, Star Wars included, um, insist on is authenticity, right? And and even if it's not. You know, they could still love it one way or the other, but those are the, those are the big complaints that you hear. This wasn't true. You know, this, these new Star Wars movies weren't true to the expanded book universe or whatever. Right. You know, and the, that that's that's the kind of you you want the confidence that somebody's who knows what they're doing is back there pulling the levers. I don't think that this kind of stuff is lending itself to. I, I don't think that people are looking for a radical reimagining of Lord of the Rings. Like no. they're not like I want a gritty. Uh, Hurt Locker version of Lord of the Rings. I, I don't. I or I want Denis Villeneuve's version of Lord of the Rings. They sure, not want, at first, anyway. No. Yeah, but I think that that's even been proven out with some of these other uh, expanded universes and franchises, mm -hmm. where for the most part, you know, Star Wars director uh, musical chairs is really fun to follow. But at the end of the day, whether Ron Howard directs it or Gareth Edwards directs it or Tony Gilroy directs it, right, or whoever comes in and finishes it, uh huh. They all wind up kind of in the same zone. Mm -hmm. And that I wonder whether that's the case. You might as well just go get Peter Jackson because are you really going to want someone who's like, I have my fresh take on Lord of the Rings? No. I mean, I think the Star Wars universe, I mean, you kind of bore that out. I mean, you're, you're right. There's, I think everybody conceptually wants a bunch of like, you know, very different movies yeah. or TV shows. But you kind of want, like, not until you're already exhausted by the mainstream version of it or, like, the very expected version of it. And who knows if that, if you ever get tired of it, yeah. you know? That, uh, that's maybe why the Russos are so successful at what they're doing is because sure. they're just kind of like, yeah, like, we know where to insert ourselves and not. Yep. Yeah. Yeah, within the context of it. I think, I think that what you were saying before about the Lord of the Rings movies is really important because... The I mean, there are a ton of diehard Tolkien fans, people who've read every page, mm -hmm. uh, have definitely read that eight-page passage that this show is going to be based on. <laughs> but so many people are going to be coming to this because of the movies. Yeah. And those movies have been living for the past, what, 10 years on TVs and on iPads and computer screens they and stay stuff. They on TNT. Yeah. yeah, they're on all the time. So, you know, back to what you were saying about special effects and everything else, you're going to be comparing them to those movies. And they hold up. They definitely hold up on TV. When you watch them now, they feel very much at home on television. Yeah, I mean, there's there, in some of these cases, and this has been, uh, you've read a lot, there's a lot of rumors about 
different shows that are in the works because of upfronts and because of uh, you know the, this the the networks are sort of announcing plans to do X, Y, and Z. And I saw there's I can't remember if it's who's developing it, but somebody's developing a young Alfred show. Oh the, yeah, like, I saw the that Batman yesterday. universe. And uh, I think Sean Fantasy tweeted like, "This is hell." <laughs> like when, like this is my idea of hell. And that is like, would you make a show about a young butler in any other way if it wasn't part of like this is the guy who winds up being Batman's butler? Right. No. But I think that th- that's why like there are some ways in which this stuff is scraping the bottom of the barrel. And then you have something like this where you're like, yeah, you know, even though they had like probably. 21 hours or 22 hours of Lord of the Rings movies at the end of the day with the Hobbits. Yeah. They probably still have a lot more stories they can tell. Yeah, absolutely true. Okay. I think I think it'll be fun to watch. Well, do you think Deadpool 2 is going to be fun to watch? I'm hopeful. Yeah. I think it'll definitely be fun to watch. Yeah. It's gotten, it's, does it, I mean, I really have not been paying that much attention because I know I'm going tomorrow to the opening. And yeah. It's, I mean, not to the, the grand opening, but I'll be there on opening day probably and, and I'm excited to see it. And, in a lot of ways, my expectations are kind of low. I mean, I liked that the first one was very different than all the other superhero movies, or enough different, you know? We're working with the same set of crayons here. But, the but you know, I don't... It, it feels like, even though I've been keeping a little bit of a distance from the reviews, it seems like the headlines I've been reading, people have not been overly positive about it. I think they were like, it's a Deadpool movie, and this is exactly what it feels like to have more than one of them. Yeah. Which is, there's probably some thrills and some laughs, but there's like a limit to the like emotional resonance of the mm-hmm. character and also like how serious this film is like not a serious movie so yeah it's sort of it's gonna eat it's gonna have to bear the weight of being a blockbuster while also just being like this is essentially like a an 80s action comedy yeah i think that's right i mean i think that we, when when a, when infinity war came out and and before that i mean when all since the avengers movies have been coming out there's there's these kind of regular occasions for people to write is this what Hollywood is now. Is this what movie go? Is this all that movies have to offer? Is yeah. These superhero movies, and in some ways, Deadpool is the kind of the distillation of it. That when you get these, you know, uh, experienced movie reviewers who feel sort of forced to go watch Deadpool and to report on it because right. this is the biggest, this is the movie of the month. Um, so you know, it, it, people are the, the exhaustion is sort of clear for, for those people. I would just say that it's. This is like for like what's been going on forever. Yeah. Like my dad would do this in the 80s when he was reviewing movies and everybody would be going to see Blast Boy Scout instead of Howard's End or something. Uh-huh. And he would be miserable about it. And that's so just the fact that like First Reformed is also coming out this week and is by all accounts one of the best films of the year. And oh wow. You know, one percent of the people who are gonna go see Deadpool will all, you know, will see that movie. But like this stuff all tends to even out. I think that it's just the the sort of blast radius of these blockbusters now feels almost like you you can't even have it doesn't even matter what your opinion is because they are unstoppable. Yeah. It would have to be a pretty it would have to be something like Fantastic Four that is just absolutely savaged from its pre-production up until its release and then disavowed by the people who are in it yeah. or making it for it to be like, no one's going to go see a superhero Yeah, movie. it's a perpetual motion machine. I mean, I get half, I feel like half of the push notifications I get on my phone are about Deadpool ticket pre-sales. You know I mean? It's like, <laughs> it, it, like there's all these articles that are about how well it's about to yeah. do. You know, we got the same thing with Ultron. Yeah. I mean, with, uh, with Infinity War, we got the same thing with Black Panther. Mm-hmm. 
And as long as the kind of pre-hype is on point, is on message, then yeah, people are going to just pour into the theaters. Um, Would 15-year-old Shoemaker be surprised at Deadpool's popularity now? Not as a movie, but as a character? Well, I think 15-year-old me would have felt really self-satisfied. Like, yeah, see, this guy, I told you this guy was awesome. Right. Um, but the fifteen-year-old me would also be like, "No, where the hell is Lobo the movie? Or you know, where is like, where is all this? Where, where are all my other favorites? You know, I need the Max on the big screen." It's a it's amazing to think of like an underserved comic fan. Sure, right now, yeah. I mean, we I was we every every podcast that the Ringer's done has hit on this at some point, but like just the amount of gratitude that I felt when like the first X Men movie popped yeah. up and wasn't terrible. Yeah, you know, um, it's that's that's a real thing. But yeah, no, I mean, Deadpool is Deadpool is I think. In a lot of ways, it's just made for fifteen year olds. I mean, that's the that is the audience, even though it's rated R. And there's sure. a lot of like, you know, and there's a lot R- of perpetual fifteen year olds out there who like want to revisit that. I think that's exactly it. I think that that we're we embrace our, you know, there's the sort of like everyone's a nerd theory now, but yeah. it's also like everyone's still a kid, and we still embrace, we still love all that stuff. That's why I think this. I mean, that's we were talking about this with Micah yesterday. Um, but like that's one of the reasons why I think that this is such a popular character now because it is the sure if you want to care about X Force and try and like parse the Fox version of the Marvel Universe mm-hmm. versus the Marvel Studios version, the Disney version, you can there's some stuff in there for you and I think that this movie is going to get into X Force and yeah. by all accounts there will be an X Force movie before there's a Deadpool three. Mm-hmm. But if you just want to see. Dick jokes and headshots, like this is this is this movie. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, every the thing that everybody points at about Deadpool is the kind of self awareness, the breaking of the fourth wall, and that's all real. I mean, I, I think all of the Marvel movies have been very self aware, and that's why they succeed in a lot of ways where the DC movies don't. Mm-hmm. It's just the sort of be, ability to laugh at oneself, or you know, the, to to kind of be aware of of the the whole enterprise. Um. We were talking a little bit with Zach Mack right before we started recording, and yeah, it was in a, in a lot of ways Deadpool ate itself the moment it existed. Mm-hmm. Right? There's no more how how much there's no other wall to break. Right? Unless Ryan William Ryan Reynolds walks into your movie theater, which he seems to do it on the press Absolutely. tour every day. Yeah. But um, but yeah, I mean, it's and and all and there's a wink there's a wink in every Marvel movie. There's a wink in you know in every movie you see now. Yeah, because it probably feels good to play with a lead. Like, DC doesn't even have the luxury at this point, even though those movies are nominally, like, they make a lot of money or they at least have sure. big box office returns. They don't really have the luxury of joking about, like, remember when we miscast this part? You know, it's like that Marvel doesn't have that problem, so they can all sort of be teasing each other about, like, you know, oh, yeah, like, we've been doing this for so long, or, like, we're so, we're all such hot guys named Chris. It's like, D- can you imagine a moment like that in a DC movie? No, but I mean, part of that is that DC deliberately sort of went the other direction. It's yeah. just like the, the color scheme is different. The whole vibe, the, edit, the directorial vibe is just very earnest, you know? And it's, it's it, they, made, they made a deliberate move to not look like MCU. Yeah. All right. Well, we're going to talk a little bit about Westworld in just a minute, but first a word from our sponsor. Today's episode of The Watch is brought to you by the homies at Thomas's English and Muffins. Looking for a breakfast that's worth skipping the snooze button for? Thomas's is the only breakfast brand that delivers a one-of-a-kind eating experience with its original nooks and crannies English muffin. There's nothing quite like that nooks and crannies texture. If you're cran life, if you're nook gang, 
It's perfectly toasted to give you your irresistibly crispy edges with a soft, warm center. Take it from a true fan. The secret to revealing that perfect nooks and crannies goodness every time is to gently pull your Thomas's English muffin halves apart. You can use a fork to split them, just don't use a knife. Next, lightly toast each half and then top them right away with butter. Watch how that butter melts and pools inside those amazing nooks and crannies spaces. It is a delicious burst of flavor in every warm, toasty, buttery bite. Everybody at the ringer, when they see me, they're like, Chris, you're the reason I get out of bed and come to work every day. But when I get out of bed, the first thing I do is make myself a Thomas's English muffin. Cran life is a movement at the ringer. Nook gang is a movement. And that's, I, I can see Zach Schwartz right now. This dude, he looked like he was 72 years old three weeks ago. And then he went on a nothing but Thomas's English muffins diet. And now he looks like Chris Hemsworth. No joke. Jewish Chris Hemsworth. If you haven't already had them, you have to toast and butter some Thomas's Nooks and Crannies English muffins. They are truly like no other. Today's episode of The Watch is brought to you by Microsoft Teams. Microsoft Teams is your hub for teamwork in Office 365. With so much to look after, wouldn't it be great if there was just one place to look? Teams is that single workspace where you can work, share, and connect with the people in your work life. Teams brings together your chats, meetings, files, and apps all in one place. Take teamwork where you work with apps for mobile and desktop. So whether you're sprinting towards a deadline or sharing your next big idea, Teams can help you and your team achieve even more. Look, a lot of stuff happening at The Bringer. We got podcasts, videos, blog posts, meetings, just trash talk about various national soccer teams and anything else in between. We need something to help us communicate, and that's what Microsoft Office Teams does. It just brings us all closer together. Microsoft Teams in Office 365. Visit office.com slash teams to learn more. Shoemaker, I, I feel like I'm in good hands because obviously, you know, Andy was actually not that harsh on Westworld on Monday, but <laughs> uh, generally... I think that the conversations that Andy and I have revolve around like a very good topic, which is, is this show good or not? Mm -hmm. um, Westworld, sort of the television version of these superhero movies where I think someone like Andy is probably like throwing his hands up and saying, hey, like, like, aren't we gonna have a conversation about whether this is good or not? And yeah. everybody else is like, it's too late for that. Yeah. Um, you're in it. You're in the the matrix right deep now. Deep in it, yeah. How hard or easy is it for you to like sometimes stick your head up and say like, wait a second, <laughs> how I actually like feel about this <laughs> as like a story and a piece of art. Well, so we we've been watching the screeners, which are, are about to end sadly, but we but we've been watching you know a couple days ahead of the of of whenever the, you know the 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 regular folks out there get to watch it. But I we watch it in a room with you know four or five people. Yeah, people who are going to be on the show. Someone from you know, the social media department or whatever. And uh, so I, you get a little bit of a cross-section mm -hmm. and you can see how people are reacting. And then I can kind of, I usually just watch what they're, watch as they watch. And then I'll watch it again on my own and sort of see how I feel. So you get a little bit of a, of a zoomed out view, but it's hard. Yeah. I mean, I think that the answer that you implicitly pose is pretty straightforward that like, it's not, it doesn't really matter if it's good or not, especially like season one, I think that was a really important conversation. Sure. I think with season two, for better or worse, it's they've just been just doing stuff, you know. I mean, they they've clearly have tried to get a totally different vibe for every episode. Like every the the first scene in every episode has been just engineered to make you feel out of place and and excited. Yeah. Um, 
and this, the show still has a sort of earnestness that that was overflowing in season one, but more, but it's like it's like a very earnest person directing, you know, Temple of Doom or something. Like they're just trying, they're 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 trying, they're they're. It's a totally different show, and it's a show that is that where like the the holy shit moments and the you know plot twists and everything are much more at home. Yeah. You know, you can they everything just sort of flows seamlessly, and I and I've I've been enjoying the hell out of the season. I have too because I think I came to a up like a nice place inside of myself where I was like, this is just a multi-million dollar version of HQ. Like we're mm. all going to gather on Sunday and we're going to try and figure this thing out. Yeah. We're going to take the test. We're going to like try to answer these questions. And those questions aren't like about the nature of humanity. And, mm-hmm. Or, or no, I'm not looking to Westworld to teach me anything about the nature of humanity. I am looking at Westworld as this like ornate puzzle. And this actually like very interesting demonstration of what happens if you take away all the things that you're taught to do first in a story. Mm-hmm. Where are we? When are we? Who are we? Yeah. What do we want? And then like you take it from there. Like all of these basic, basic like narrative functions that you're supposed to perform when you're starting a story. And Westworld has done that to some extent. They have been like, this is somebody and this is what they want or this is a robot and this is what it wants. But the way that they've kind of said, well, we're not going to tell you where it is. We're not going to tell you when it is. We're not going to tell you who put them here or why they put them here or what their major, their ulterior motive is has become kind of fascinating. And in that way, I don't then have to worry about whether or not I find Dolores and Teddy conversations (laughs) particularly crackling. I mean, if I want Hepburn and Tracy, I guess I can watch Hepburn and Tracy movies, you know? Yeah. And it's hard to do. I mean, uh, Dolores and Teddy are doing this sort of like meta version of Hepburn and Tracy or whoever it is. And it, and so, and it makes it. <laughs> or like a, a syrup version of it. Like, yeah. And so <laughs> they might be doing the best possible version of it. Mm-hmm. And that doesn't necessarily make it like a joy you know, that leaps off the screen. Um, I think you're right. I think that some of those base, I mean, you can, you know, that they're, they're messing with us on some of those basic questions. Sure. The where are we thing is the most obvious one. Because so, in episode one of this season, you had the, um, what the 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 military men in that very in that kind of the second I guess not the opening scene but when they when Bernard wakes up on the beach and then he goes when we see Carl Strand for the first time he's speaking to the Chinese military or mm-hmm. whatever and then when my first read on that was this was Nolan and Joy saying this the, all these theories about where we're located is not important to the plot this is us saying stop talking about it we're just going to throw it in the very beginning yeah. of the first episode yeah. But ever since then, they've been kind of rolling that back and letting and and giving us all these hints that like we don't know exactly where we are. Right. That that military was there. We've seen some signs in Chinese or whatever. But like, they've not said it out loud. And now, and all of those crazy theories that like maybe this we're on the moon and China just owns it or something or like <laughs> right. whatever. Like all that makes a lot more sense. Yes. So I mean, it's you. I, I've said all season that that you know the 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 the. There's a huge unreliable narrator motif to the show, which you see with like Bernard not knowing where he is in space or and time, is, and, Del- right? yeah, and Dolores not still coming to grips with who she's going to be. But the showrunners are the real unreliable narrators because that you don't know. You know, if if this were, if this were like if the, if this show was being run by someone who had done it before, I feel like you would feel more confident that they were making every decision. Mm-hmm. Not it's not that they're doing it right or wrong, but doing it in a way that we can that we're comfortable that we're familiar with. Yeah, you know a- what I mean. Absolutely, it's sort of like you go to an art museum and there's this giant piece of like modern expressionist painting on the wall or whatever. 
And then you're like, ah, I wonder what that was all about. And you read the little placard that's next to it. And you're like, I don't really buy that. Just that was just some like 25 year old that wrote that description. Right. You know, I don't really know if it's true or not. <laughs> right. But like this whole thing is really cool. Like yeah. this painting is really beautiful and I'm, and I'm into it and I can't, you know, and I would love to hear the, the, the painter talk about it. I think that, you know, just to kind of echo what we were talking about earlier. And it, when you have these things that are like Lord of the Rings or Game of Thrones and you have a huge crowd of people who have like a, a pre-established investment in whether it's characters oh, yeah. or a world or whatever, then that's both very powerful because you have their attention, mm -hmm. but you also are playing with their expectations. The difference with Westworld is that I feel like it is almost crowdsourced. Yes. Like we're writing it. You know, they may or may not take our advice or mm -hmm. or acknowledge our theories are correct or not or, or you know, play into our expectations or subvert them. And those subversions or confirmations may or may not uh, make much sense. Yeah. But there is 1,000% a relationship between the Westworld fan base <laughs> and the Westworld creative uh, energy, you know? And, and Absolutely true. What we're looking for in this show and what we're sort of piecing together is definitely like the central tension of like the experience of watching it. It's yeah. not, oh God, I really hope that Dolores is redeemed or that, you know, uh, William is redeemed at the end yeah, of this long journey through this world. It's like, I, that may or may not happen. They may make nine seasons of this and they could be, the last three of them could be in Raj world for all we know. Yeah. No, you're right. It's all about the kind of immersive experience. It's like True Detective season one. Like I had yeah. one of my best friends back in New York Tom, like we enjoy it, and have all the same tastes and like books and TV and movies sure. and stuff, but he missed True Detective season one. And I just kept telling him, you got to check this out. It's so great. You got to check it out. And when he finally got around to watching it, like nine months later, he was like, yeah, it was pretty good. Did he already know all the like Yellow King stuff? No, I don't. I think he'd stayed away, but he just wasn't as into it as I was expecting him to be. And we started talking through it. And I was just like, oh, you know what you're not getting that I got is Reddit. Yeah, or like Sunday night, you go right from the show to the message boards yeah. and you're part of this experience with everybody else trying to figure out the literary sources and everything. And and, and um, that's a really important part of how TV is made now. And and Westworld has got it. I mean, Westworld, I mean, this past episode, um, there was a book that was very clearly put right in the, in, in the opening scene, the camera panned by. And I couldn't get in the screener we had. I, I had I couldn't I couldn't pause or screen grab it to yeah. figure out what it was. But I was just like I can't wait till Reddit figures this out. And Reddit figured it out twenty minutes after the show went off the air. What was it? It was the Vonnegut. It was a Vonnegut book, The Sirens of Titan. Okay, which is all about free will and it's and about a uh, uh, a very rich man who like makes his home in outer space on another planet. For you, I mean. I think that the first season and one of the reasons why, uh, it, it, if I could speak from Andy, struggled with it was ultimately a lack of interest in the um, the, the character trajectory of robots. You know, yes. like like what happens to them and whether or not they are quote unquote free or not. Mm -hmm. Has the show for you moved past that? And if so, what is what's what is the most interesting thing about this show outside of like? the plot mechanics of like when or where where is this show taking place or whatever i feel like the robe the the hosts have taken even more of a backseat this season in terms of watchability in a way to the to the humans mm -hmm. um you know they're they're all they're still very interesting but i i almost i think i, I enjoyed watching them as un like unwitting Ho they're, they're, as just like as robots who were like were actually actually had consciousness but hadn't found found it yet. Then these people who were like 
kind of angstily trying to try, trying to embody their new consciousness, mm-hmm. or in Bernard's case, trying to figure out just what he's doing there, or like what what he's doing yeah. from scene to scene. And part of it's that you know, Man in Black is now allowed to be more than a one dimensional character. So we you know, there's all there's the the humans actually have a lot of of intrigue around them. Then uh, you have characters like Elsie and and uh, well, I guess Grace is what we were calling her, but Emily, who were, who just sort of like pop off the screen, yeah, you know. Uh, and meanwhile, you know, Dolores and Teddy are like acting real and hard. having the same conversation every week. Yeah, right. Yeah, I wonder whether or not, in retrospect, because I think what what Westworld had to do was show a lot, it, despite the fact that it obscures a lot of things, it had to show a lot of cards at first. You know, yeah. you basically wanted to create this idea that um, William could be the uh, the villain of the show, but also the hero of the show at mm-hmm. the same time. And obviously that duality is, is, is sort of commented on. But I wonder if they had known it was going to be a hit on this level, if they could have told it almost chronologically. Yeah. And it had been more of an arc of like happening upon this technology, building this thing, having these sort of really deep moral questions about whether or not you, you know, death should be the end or yeah. not. And then you sort of slowly get into these outer uh, reaches of this world rather than the kind of half flashback, half time jump stuff that they're doing. I think that's a good question. And I think that it's not even, I don't know if it's even a, a showrunner situation or what. I do think that there's, for you know, I'm, I, I count myself, um, you know, among the, those who kind of figured out the Man in Black William thing very early sure. on and watched the whole show. And, and when I mentioned it to people, I didn't feel bad, guilty about it because I was just like, I wonder if. But then halfway through the season, I was like, oh, there's no wondering anymore. And then I then I retroactively felt bad for like you know waking up the host as right. it were. Right. But the, but um, but it's easy to look back now and be like, it was a mistake to build the whole first season around a reveal that a lot of people figured out early. Yeah. But it still that drew a lot of people in. Yeah. Right. And this and I and I keep bringing this up with Dolores. Like I think that I mean I, I would totally believe it if you told me we did market research for the show. And ninety percent of the viewing audience still thinks Dolores is the hero, like as of episode five. Sure, you know, so it, there, there's you just don't know how everyone in the world is watching this show. We you see this with Game of Thrones all the time, where it's like the vast majority of people watching miss fifty percent of what happens. Right, and you have like, and you have probably people out there who have been dying for like two or three seasons to see Cersei get her head cut off. Yeah, not that I know what's going to happen to Cersei or anything. And then you have some people who are like, they can't lose this person because yeah. she's the like the most exciting person on this show. But I do think to answer your question, I mean, I think there was probably a more linear way to tell it. But yeah. I think that, I, but I, but so far, I think they've done a pretty good job. I mean, I think that, I mean, this season has been. You know, in, after episode one, I thought we were going to get a totally linear show. There'd be flashbacks and everything else, but I really thought season two was going to be the mystery of what happened right before the beach. Yes. You know, it's a two-week window, and everything is within that, and they've gone in a million different directions. And there directions. are at least three time zones, I guess, oh, yeah. and possibly more, depending on what you're thinking about Arnold. Right. Yeah, absolutely. Right. There's just so much going on, and and I don't. I mean, it's it's almost impossible. It's almost impossible to judge it. You know, I've been yeah. I've been enjoying it. Um, it doesn't feel. It definitely feels like there's more of a steady hand than like Lost, which is what it keeps getting compared to by myself and you know to this season. There's a lot of Lost in there, but like, you know, the, watch. You know, you watch Lost thinking like, I wonder if they're going to be able to stick the landing because they've just been making stuff up as they yeah, go along. Yeah, also just like you just go back and realize like how nuts it is that Lost was 22 episodes a season. And you're just oh, like yeah. watching, you're just like, 
wow, there's really like five episodes, like five weeks of our life where you were just like- In an Iraq torture chamber. Okay, cool. Yeah, yeah. yeah right. Exactly. <laughs> yeah. All right. Well, uh, Westworld of Recapables goes up Sunday nights. Yeah. Uh, the theories and tinfoil hat stuff goes up on Tuesday. Right. And then Mass Man- uh, every Wednesday every and Wednesday, Wednesday afternoon. And Press Box, and press on box is Tuesday mornings, I think. Tuesday mornings. Yeah. Okay, so you can hear Shoemaker all over the Ringer Podcast Network. Thank you so much for filling in today. Thanks for having me, man. I was going to be bored today without something to do. <laughs> Talk to you later. Today's episode of The Watch was brought to you by Thomas's English Muffin. Here's a breakfast I always get out of bed for. The Thomas's Original Nooks and Crannies English Muffins. There's nothing quite like that irresistible nooks and crannies texture. Perfectly toasted, crispy edges with a soft, warm center. How the butter pulls inside all those nooks and crannies spaces is just amazing. It's a delicious burst of flavor in every warm, toasty, buttery bite. Thomas's Nooks and Crannies English Muffins are truly like no other. Today's episode of The Watch was brought to you by Joe Para Talks With You, a new show on Adult Swim. It's a quiet show about Joe and his friends and the things in his life, like breakfast foods, rocks, weddings, being woken up by thunder, grilled chicken, pumpkins, fall drives, and more. Now, here is a personal request from Joe. I'm not Joe, but I'm making the request for him. Please watch. Joe Para Talks With You, Sundays at midnight on Adult Swim.